finally, I'll just have a little talk here, um, just to kind of wrap things up. The text I'm going to read from is Galatians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 11 and ending in verse 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Um, I, in college, back in 2000 at Wake Forest, I roomed with someone who was uh, on the leadership team for student-to-student ministries, STS, which uh, the man on the back row there actually founded. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so he came into the room about three hours before STS was about to launch, and this, was a, this is entirely student-led ministry. Students would lead worship. A different student would testify each week. And anyhow, my roommate was in a panic because the speaker for that week had laryngitis, and her voice, which they hoped would be healed, had finally given out. She had no voice, and they had three hours to find a speaker who could shoot, you know, shoot from the hip and give a talk real quickly. So they chose a girl named uh, Tish Harrison from Austin, Texas. She actually is presently uh, works for InterVarsity Graduate Ministry at Vanderbilt. And uh, she asked a question which has stuck with me for the last 12 years. Uh, I think it's a question that is probably the most pivotal question for your ministry and probably the most pivotal question for your life. Um, so let's, let's pray. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak and your Holy Spirit would speak alone. We pray that you would slay sinners and exalt the Savior for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I have a friend who is a very, he's an outstanding architect, uh, and his name is Walker Rineker, and he um, one time was talking to me about what is the essence of design, what is the essence of perfect design for an architect, and he says that an architect arrives at a place of completion when the design, if you were to add one more detail, then the design would be flawed, but if you were to take one detail away from the design, then it would be incomplete. You come to this place of perfection where nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away, and that is the essence of perfect design. And the question that Tish Erickson asked regards whether or not God's design for the salvation of men and for the redemption of the world in Jesus, whether it constitutes perfect design. The question that she asked is this, is Jesus enough? That's all she said. Is Jesus enough? 
And she repeated it over and over and over again. Probably going to do that too. Um, So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at whether Jesus is enough for your ministry. We're going to look at whether Jesus is enough for you. And more, uh, and, and more specifically, we're going to look at whether, you know, what happens when Jesus is not enough. Because that's the context that Paul is preaching into in Galatians. He's preaching, he's writing a letter to a ministry that had lost sight of the gospel. And his words said it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Uh, and there started to creep in this mentality that it was Jesus plus XYZ. So, it starts out in, in Galatians 2 where Paul is, is dining with the Gentiles. These are people who've been converted to Christ. Paul, we can assume, uh, sorry, Peter. Peter, we can assume, is uh, ministering to them. He's discipling them. And as Paul says, he is dining with them. So he's sharing life with them as equals. But uh, there is a shift in the direction of his ministry. Uh, and it comes when a group of Jewish Christians who came down from the James's church in Jerusalem uh, and they were known as the Judaizers or the Circumcision Party. And what they believed was that a person needed faith in Christ, but after that, they needed to be circumcised, they needed to follow the Jewish dietary laws, and they needed to follow all the Jewish ceremonial laws. So it was faith in Jesus plus X, Y, and Z. And so Peter sees these guys coming down to his church where he is not, he is not doing the same type of ministry, and he gets afraid. He becomes fearful. Uh, and he starts to change things. He no longer eats with the Gentiles. And then Peter uh, then starts to demand that they, they be circumcised, they get on board with these Jewish ceremonial laws, and so the ministry starts to change. And so we see three, three things that occur in a ministry that loses sight of the gospel. Uh, the first thing we see is there is an emphasis on externals. Uh, Peter's decision to withdraw from the Gentiles it had nothing to do with a sincere conviction uh, that this is what God has revealed. It had nothing to do with the uh, you know, movement of the Spirit. It had everything to do with how he looked. How he looked to the Jewish Christians. How he looked to the Judaizers. And it had everything to do with the appearance of his ministry. What, what could be seen. And so he goes down this road of... of, of emphasizing uh, an externalism and what we would call a, moral, a sense of moralism. And, you know, we see this all the time in youth ministry. You know, there are the extreme examples that sometimes we associate with, you know, fundamentalist Christianity where, you know, there's the worship leader who, you know, says, puts the guilt trip on the kids that if you're really worshiping God, you're going to raise your hands or you're going you're gonna to dance. And that's the, the next level is you're going to start dancing around. And, and so there's this, you know, sense of manipulation to, to get some kind of external result. We, you know, we see that. But that's probably not happening a whole lot in your ministry. But I'll admit, there are so many times when I am so fired up when a kid can use Christian vocabulary. Or they can, you know, they have these great answers that sound so intellectually impressive. Holy cow, that's a 10th grader and she, you know, she can define the bound will and I think she just used the word depravity. Isn't that fantastic? He just said imputed righteousness. Holy cow. And then in reality, and then in reality, that same girl uh, basically in her real life defines sin as, uh, well, right and wrong based on what makes you happy. You know, if you know, doing this or doing that makes you happy, then it's okay. And so there's this, uh, this glory in the external answer, having the right answer, 
or sorry, this external response and having the right answer, um, but there's uh, you know, not as much concern or attention to whether something is actually happening in their heart that's translating into life. So emphasis on externals. Secondly, uh, there is a very high risk of hypocrisy because when Jesus is not enough in a ministry, it ultimately is going to resort and revert to law. Uh, it's going to revert to uh, a system where it's about a standard that we need to live up to and, and everything is about our performance living up to that standard. Uh, in this case, uh, Paul pulls no punches in the way that he regards the Jewish Christians or Barnabas or Peter. He calls them hypocrites, straight up. And, you know, it's funny, he says, even Barnabas, even sweet Barnabas, he became a hypocrite. He got called into this too. And so you, we can imagine how the, the Gentile Christians in the Church of Galatia must have felt. You know, here is Peter, who has you know, nurtured them and discipled them, and all of a sudden Peter is not going to eat with them. And Peter had shared this, this message of freedom and grace, and all of a sudden Peter has got all these demands, of these, all these things that have to do. He's totally, there's totally been a shift in, in you know, the way he's regarding me. And of course, you know, they were probably hurt, they probably were resented Peter, and, and altogether they were probably pretty dis, uh, disenchanted with the faith that they had that they had embraced. And you know, in youth ministry, when uh, when the the gospel is not enough, uh, and and we we get into a mode of having a standard and it all being about all performance to the standard, uh, there is no more there's no audience that's more acutely attuned to hypocrisy than teenagers. I mean, they can, they can sense it from a million miles away. And consequently, what happens is the youth minister has a big, fat bullseye on his back. And it's true. The, you know, the, uh, not that this has ever happened with me, but, you know, losing your temper with the kids, or someone cuts you off in Atlanta traffic while you're driving the church bus, and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe some inappropriate vocabulary might just slip from your mouth. Things like that, which are not good and we don't need to do, um, probably shouldn't have admitted that with my boss in the back of the room, um, but anyhow, no. But, uh, but anyhow, things like that that are you know not good, um, they, they become a huge deal because the kids see that discrepancy of like, wait a minute, you're pushing me to live to this standard and you, you're falling short yourself. But when there's this atmosphere of grace and you include yourself as a sinner in in this struggle. Uh, there's just a, a lot less risk of you looking like a hypocrite who's going to leave your kids very disillusioned with the faith. Uh, and finally, uh, when the gospel is not enough, uh, there, just, there tends to inevitably be disunity and division in ministry. We can see here in the, in the church at Galatians, they've gone from you know, brothers and sisters eating together and sharing life together uh, to circumcised, uncircumcised, Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian. And we can see this kind of polarization within the church in Galatia. You know, division is going to happen in any ministry. It's just kind of human nature. But when there is this uh, emphasis on law and when we lose sight of the grace of the gospel, uh, there become the, the divisions between the drinkers and the non-drinkers and, uh, you know, the good girls and the bad girls and the Easter Sunday Christians and the every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Bible study Christians. Those divisions just get farther and further apart. And it's because we're not identifying self, ourselves as sinners who are loved by God, as adopted sons and daughters, when the gospel is not enough, we start to define ourselves based on performance. And so the divisions are just that much wider. Now, 
So the real question here is this. The real question is, is Jesus enough for you? Because you see, in, in this, this text in Galatians, it all comes down to one problem. And the problem is that Peter was afraid. That's, that's, the, that's where the train goes off the tracks and the wheels go off the wagon. It, it, in, um, it, it says that you know, when, the, when the Jewish ca- uh, Christians came down, Peter, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing the circumcision party is when everything changes. And, and it's, Peter is now making his decisions and charting the course of his ministry based on his fear of rejection of this group, this group from the circumcision party. And so here's what we see happen to Peter and here's what we see happen to ourselves uh, when the gospel is not enough for us in our own ministry. The first thing we do is we objectify the people to whom we minister. Uh, Peter, he pulls away from the Gentiles. He stops eating with them. And in ancient Near East culture, that communicated that you are less of a human being than I am. You're not an equal. Uh, and so with that being said, you are subhuman. And on top of that, the, uh, the Gentile Christians for Peter now became an obstacle. Uh, they now became an obstacle for him winning the approval that he needed. Uh, because, oh, I've got these Gentiles. They're not circumcised. They're not living by the, you know, the, by the Jewish customs. Um, and I am totally going to get slammed by the folks coming from James's church. And so now his relationship to them is, it's, it's no longer a, a human, equal, relation, loving relationship. It's now one of objectification, where he is using them for his, to create his own justification. Um, and, you know, Ashley Knoll put this out there really bluntly at the first Rooted Conference. He said, if you have a performance-based identity and you are not living the reality that you are completely forgiven through Christ, then ultimately what will happen is you're going to end up hating the people to whom you minister. Um, We all know this feeling, the kid who's tracking, we just love that kid who's coming and they're, they're living for Christ and they're reading their Bible and they're giving the right answers and then... They, uh, they stop, or they go to college and they dive into debauchery or they abandon the church, and all of a sudden there's this great sense of disappointment. There may even be resentment because you're like, I invested all this time, and look at what you're doing now. And basically what it boils down to is I need your performance. I'm depending on your performance for me to feel righteous, for me to feel perfectly acceptable and to feel successful I am depending on you instead of depending on the cross. And, you know, it's, uh, this, this can take so many different forms in our ministries. Um, and, you know, it can pervade our relationships with parents where we just love the parents who always tell us how wonderful we are and you're just doing such a great job and thanks for all you do for the kids. And, you know, we resent the parents who are, who are critical of what we may be doing or maybe pointing out what may be reasonable shortcomings in our ministry. And so when we don't live in the full reality of the gospel, there is such a propensity to objectify the people with whom we're, to whom we're ministering. Secondly, uh, when Jesus is not enough for us, uh, it, it really does become all about us. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2, he says, Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. 
Well, the converse of that is through the law, I live to the law that I might live for myself. And, and everything became all about Peter and, and his ministry. The whole course of the ministry changes because it becomes all about Peter trying to build his own righteousness and create his own justification. Uh, you know, Peter makes all of these changes and all of these accommodations, and it all comes down to him. And there's no need to give lots of examples about this. We all know what it's like, and we all know when there's this sense of entitlement where we've worked so hard, you put in all these hours, and you know, you just, hey, where's the recognition? Where's, you know, where's, where's the, where are the accolades for all that I'm doing? Or, um, or you know, we're, we're motivated to do the things that we know are going to get us affirmation. Um, and, and that's certainly what's happening with Peter, and it's certainly where we, what we fall into when uh, we're not living in the full truth and the full sufficiency of Christ. Finally, uh, and this is one I know well, when Jesus is not enough for us, ministry and life in general, but ministry becomes a ruthless roller coaster of fear and anxiety. It is a violent, cruel pendulum of, of back and forth, of I'm the greatest, I'm the worst, I'm anxious, I'm on a high. Back and forth, back and forth. Uh, can you only imagine how Peter must have felt in this context, okay? Think about this, the, the knot in his stomach. Think about all of his guilt. He's got the folks from Jerusalem who've come down. And he's on pins and needles worrying about how they're, what they're going to think of him and whether they're going to approve of him or disapprove of him. You've got the Jewish Gentiles, And you know, sorry, the Gentile Christians. Uh, you've got the Gentile Christians and you know he had to have felt utterly guilty. In his sober moments, he had to have felt guilty that he had sold them out. And meanwhile, he goes down to, the, uh, to Paul's missionary camp at Antioch, and Paul calls him to the carpet, because Paul says, you're wrong. Look what you've done, you hypocrite. And so Peter has this instability in his life, and there certainly could be no peace and no sense of joy in where he's living. And we all know this, and we all know what it's like uh, to bounce back and forth on this pendulum of you know, self-righteousness to guilt and arrogance to failure and so on and so forth. We know the roller coaster ride. And it is such, uh, such a, a great hope um, that the gospel sets us free from that. The gospel sets us free from this roller coaster ride and this instability. And the good news here is, look, you know, think about now the context that Paul's writing into. Think about what the mindset must have been. There must have been confusion in the church. The, you know, the, the Gentile Christians have gone back and forth. You know, what's, what's the right answer? First, it's faith alone. Now, it's uh, I have to do all these other things. What's going on here? Um, you, know, you can imagine Peter is probably, probably a mess in some ways. Um, but Paul just reminds them of the gospel. He just brings them back into clarity. The first thing he reminds them of is the futility of the law. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through, Christ, but through faith in Christ alone. Uh, he reminds them that your performance is, is not going to save you, and your performance is not going to bring you peace. It's not going to bring you contentment. The second thing he does is he reminds them that their old self, that self that continually fails, that continually messes up, uh, that is so self-absorbed, that old self has died with Christ on the cross. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. And so all, you know, all, of, all of the shortcomings... They have been buried, and they are history. 
And then he, um, he goes back to imputation. He says, Christ lives in me. It's not just that your sins have been forgiven. It's not just that your old self has been buried. It's that the righteousness of Jesus has been placed on you, and consequently you are now accepted as a son and a daughter of, Christ, of God. You are now an adopted child of God. And so Peter, uh, Paul brings this clarity. And it's just, it's amazing in those, those good moments where we live, when we live out of the truth of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ, how ministry changes. You know, it, it, the, our, our methodology, the way we go about things, it, it really gets pretty simple. It's new relationships, love people, share the gospel, teach the word, pray like crazy, and trust God with results. Understand that the results are probably invisible for the most part, and God is going to be faithful. It's not your ministry, it's God's ministry. We just need to be faithful to our part and trust God with results. Uh, when we walk in the sufficiency of Christ, um, the grace of Christ frees us to be genuinely empathetic and to really love the people to whom we minister. The, the needy kid who is so self-absorbed, who texts you a thousand times a day, Every, every, you know, every week there's an emergency. Every week their girlfriend is not, you know, it, 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 you, we know the kid, we know the kid. You know what? Instead of being annoyed and frustrated with that kid, the reality of the gospel allows us to say, you know what? You're needy, you're wounded, and so am I. Let's keep it real. Uh, it, it allows you to sympathize with the parent, the parent who is always telling you just how, how insufficient your ministry is and how, you know, we need to change things and I'll help you retool and, you know, just give, you know this, this is the consultant to your ministry. You can say, you know, uh, this is just a parent who's really concerned about their kid and they are really afraid of, you know, their child is getting older and they're really afraid what's going to happen to their kid. And, um, you know, I can understand that. They're just trying to trying to find some sense of control in what is a very, very scary process. And, you know, I can understand that. I'll be there in about 10 years too. Um, it, it really does open the possibility for there to be unity and community in our ministries. Because we move away from these performance-based identities, um, from the jocks and the popular girls and the dorky kids and the debate club and the track kids, to an identity that's rooted in Christ. It, it really does provide some possibility uh, for there to be unity in our ministries. Um, it allows us to minister for the glory of God. The, the gospel, when we remember the reality of what we deserve and what Jesus has done on our behalf and how much we've inherited through the cross, uh, it allows us to operate out of gratitude and to really, to really minister for the glory of God. Uh, it allows us to operate with greater rest and peace. No, we're not ever going to have complete rest and peace. But it, t- it takes us off the performance treadmill, and it frees us from this constantly evaluating ourselves based on results. Uh, and finally, the gospel frees us to tell the truth. It frees us to answer hard questions. When the kid asks, are you really telling me that man is that bad? You can say, you know, actually, it's actually probably worse. And when the kid says, so you're telling me that Jesus is going to love me, regardless of whether I am a missionary or a meth dealer, you can say, absolutely. His love for you is not going to change based on the mistakes that you make. Christ will love you forever. Uh, And so the final question here is this. 
Do we really believe that Jesus is enough? And I don't have any doubt that every single person in this room intellectually accepts that Jesus is enough. I don't have any doubt that everyone here theologically believes in the sufficiency of Christ's life, sacrifice, and resurrection. But let's, let's be honest. Of course we don't. I mean, if, we did, if we did really believe that Jesus is enough, we wouldn't be so insecure. We wouldn't worry so much. We wouldn't be such control freaks. Uh, and we wouldn't be so defensive uh, if we really lived in the reality of the gospel. And the best news is that even in that, Jesus is enough. It is not I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And so we can go about our business, you know, falling off the wagon time and time again. And the good news is that we are free people and that Jesus is enough in the midst of our inability to fully embrace and fully believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit is big enough and the Holy Spirit is at work. And so, to close the conference, uh, as we did the first time, we're not going to close putting you under the law and telling you, go back and do relationships. Go back and share the gospel. Go do a gospel-centered ministry. Give up the gimmicks. We're not going to do that. We're just going to close reminding you of the gospel. And I'm going to say the words that my um, mentor said to me 10 years ago that completely altered the course of my life. He said this when I was on the brink of a nervous breakdown. He said, wow. <laughs> he said more than well. He said the gospel is rest. And the gospel means that Jesus carries the burden of your life. And the gospel means that you'll never, ever have to prove yourself again. Because through Christ, God will love you perfectly forever. Thanks for coming.